0: Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.
1: Hello and welcome to Babbage. From the world of science and technology, why fishermen in Alaska are having a whaley bad catch.
2: So the most current estimates of how much the whales are taking off the lines are between five and 16 kilograms for every hundred hooks that are baited on a line.
1: And a familiar voice joins us. It is great to be back on the show. It's Kenneth Kukie. He sat down with technology veteran Tim O'Reilly to discuss why we're all so negative about the years ahead.
3: Technology does not want to eliminate jobs. It wants to solve problems.
1: i'm hal hudson the technology correspondent for the economist and your host for today our first story is hot off the press minutes ago the journal nature announced an important development in gene editing crispr is often described as acting like a pair of scissors snipping out mistakes in the dna's code however scientists have now developed a new technique natasha loader is the economist's healthcare correspondent and she's been following the story natasha I understand they're able to change the DNA without cutting it.
4: Yes, that's right. A team at Harvard University has found a way to do something called base editing and this is when you change the letters of code on a DNA strand without cutting it at all and that's a direct chemical manipulation that they're doing on DNA. In simple terms, what they mean is they've taken the CRISPR Cas9 editing system, the the old one that cuts DNA and swaps out uh, and swaps in new information. And what they've done is they've just bolted on an enzyme and they've created a molecule that's able to find a precise location in our genomes and then essentially make a very precise change to a chemical letter, one or two chemical letters of DNA without cutting the genome at all.
1: Now, what is it about this protein machine that is better? Is it more promising for medical applications because it causes less sort of collateral damage when editing the genome? What what exactly is useful about it?
4: Well, that's exactly the phrase to use, collateral damage. I mean, any time you break a strand of DNA, you're sort of causing a a physiological change within the cell, and that can cause a sort of number of unwanted side effects. And so you, you don't want to be cutting DNA unless you absolutely have to.
1: Gosh, so this is this is more precise gene editing than ever.
4: Yes, that's right. And what's really exciting about it is that uh, the gene editing technique that everyone's been terribly excited about for the last couple of years is not very good at doing point mutations. And yet, it's point mutations that cause the vast majority of the kind of genetic diseases that afflict human beings, whether it's Huntington's or cystic fibrosis or things like that. It's usually these one-point mutations. And if you could make a really precise change, then in theory, you could address a sort of very Wide range of medical problems.
1: And the other thing I know about CRISPR is that there has been a huge fight over who owns the intellectual property. Is this tied up in that same dispute?
4: It is. Because the base editor that has been created at Harvard University essentially relies on the CRISPR Cas9 architecture uh, to sort of essentially direct and locate the right spot in the cell to make the change, anyone who wants to use this new technique based editing is going to have to get permission or licensing from Uh, whoever owns the CRISPR-Cas9 technique, which is under dispute, and also from Harvard University. So you've got what is essentially a sort of a stack of patents uh, attached to this technique. Now, for researchers, I wouldn't imagine that that's going to matter too much because generally in academia, these tools are shared quite freely. But when it comes to commercial use, that's when uh, things start to get really serious.
1: Mm, That makes sense. Natasha, thank you very much for coming on the show.
4: Thank you very much.
1: Sperm whales are one of the many species to have benefited from the moratorium on whaling in 1982. The population is estimated to be growing by 4% a year. But Alaskan fishermen are suffering as a result. Here's why. That clicking is coming from a sperm whale as it removes black cod from a fishing line. It's a prized catch, and all that pilfering costs fishermen.
2: So the most current estimates of how much the whales are taking off the lines are between 5 and 16 kilograms for every 100 hooks that are baited on a line. Boats bait thousands of hooks per fishing set, and black cod are currently fetching about $14 a kilogram on the market. So this is costing fishermen a lot of money.
1: That's Sonia Schwartz, a visiting scholar at Berkeley in California. And by my math, that's a lot of money.
2: The fishermen are frustrated for the most part. They actually really like the whales, but they don't know what to do about them.
1: And so SeaSwap, a collaboration between fishermen and scientists, was set up to help manage the conflict between whales and people. Producer Greya Jackson Skyped with Sonia to discuss what they've come up with
4: what was one of the first initiatives they tried?
2: Uh, Well, there have been lots of initiatives. So the first thing that the fishermen tried was just try to find ways to make the whales go away. And this ranged everything from trying to play heavy metal music at them or banging on the rails. Eventually this became more scientific and they found these sound deterrent devices, which they could install on the boats that were supposed to play these sounds that were unpleasant for the whales, so should make them go away. But whales are really smart. So they learned really quickly that these sounds were associated with fishing boats and they became dinner bells instead, essentially. (laughs) So that didn't
4: go too well for them. They've come up with some other ideas since though, haven't they?
2: In the past few years, they've moved more towards avoidance of the whales, So rather than trying to get the whales to go away, they're trying to just not encounter them at all. So the scientists at SeaSwap have created monitoring systems. So they've put satellite tags on several of the whales. They've also created a system where fishermen that see whales can call in and tell them that there are whales in that area. And they distribute this information. So then other fishermen can call in and be like, well, where are their whales today? So just to try to go to places where the whales aren't. Um, The other main strategy that's been effective so far, though it's still in its early stages, is they've started using what are called acoustic decoy buoys. These buoys basically broadcast recordings of boats hauling fishing lines. So fishermen that are using these buoys will essentially go place a buoy with a recording on it, set it, that attracts the whales to this area, and then they'll go set their lines about 10 or 10 miles away or further, essentially.
4: Given that these whales recognise that boats meant food, it was a dinner bell, as you said, do you not think they're going to cotton onto this pretty soon as well?
2: Uh, Probably. Um, It's kind of this game of of escalating strategies. So as soon as they figure one out, basically the scientists um, and the fishermen are working on coming up with new ones. So the other the other thing that's been going on is, as part of a strategy to help prevent the whales from stealing the fish, is this year they recently approved pot fishing for black cod in the Gulf of Alaska. And pot fishing differs from longlining, and rather than having the fish out in a line, you have a, basically a wire mesh cage, like you would use for crabs or or usually or lobster. Um, and these cages are usually about six feet long and they'll put about 15 pounds of bait in them. And they kind of deploy them the same way that they deploy the long lines where you string a bunch of cages onto a line, you put them on the bottom, you wait for a day and then you haul them back up. But because the fish are in the cage, the whales can't get at them as the lines are being hauled. So this is a new strategy for fishing in the Gulf of Alaska for black cod. And so far, it's been very effective. My understanding is the problem with the pots is that they're quite expensive. Right. So the cost for converting a boat from line fishing to pot fishing is estimated between $100,000 and $300,000 per boat. Um, it's also very limited on what boats can convert. So you basically need a boat that's at least 60 feet long to even have enough room on the deck to deal with the pots. So when you're dealing with a line, you're just hauling in a long line, but when you're dealing with the pots, you need to set up all of these pots on the deck. You need to haul giant pots onto the deck. So, so small boats just actually can't handle it. That's been a little bit controversial because if more and more boats switch over to pot fishing, they think that's going to drive some of the smaller boats out of the fishery.
4: Mm, and I suppose the problem there is that if sperm whales can figure out all these other decoys, presumably one day they're also going to figure out how to get into these pots as well.
2: I maybe. <laughs> um, the hope is that that whales, because they don't have opposable thumbs, will not learn how to open pots. But you never know what's going to happen.
1: Who knew that sperm whales would like heavy metal? A special thanks to Sonia for joining us on Babbage today. And now I hand over to a voice we all know very well,
5: Kenneth Gukier. Thank you very much. It is great to be back on the show. So there is a lot of negativity in the current discourse about the future, much of it revolving around the impact of technology and what it will have on our ability and our need to work. Our guest today is more positive about these trends. It is Tim O'Reilly. He is a veteran in the technology industry and the founder and CEO of O'Reilly Media, a publishing and media company that covers all aspects of computer technology and the Internet. He coined the term Web 2.0, among other things. The conferences he has held over decades have fostered the conversation between pioneers in the computer industry that have shaped the technology we use today. His latest book is WTF, or what's the future and why it's up to us. It aims to inject some positive insights into the discussion and shape a more optimistic outlook on the way technology could change society. Tim, welcome.
3: Thanks for having me.
5: So Tim, let me first ask you about the most optimistic way that you see technology, which is in the area of jobs. You don't think it's going to be such a crisis, or do you? Technology does not want to eliminate jobs.
3: It wants to solve problems. The reason it's eliminating jobs in our current economy is because that's what we're asking it to do. We have told companies that the function of technology is to improve their performance, to eliminate humans, to basically drive their stock price. And that fundamental instruction to our companies is what is destroying jobs, not technology. Now, Jeff Bezos is a great counterexample. Between 2014 and 2016, he put 45,000 robots into his warehouses, and he added 250,000 people. And it's because he didn't say, hey, let's eliminate workers. Let's do the same thing with fewer people. He said, let's do more. Let's pack more products into the warehouse. Let's actually get more products out same day. And because he kept
5: upping the ante, he kept growing the business. Is our economy able to absorb these new technologies that are able to do these incredible new things while also maintaining jobs and creating new jobs? Or do we need new institutions and new mechanisms of retraining to get people to interact with the new AI robotic age? Because even if the technologies don't inherently destroy jobs, jobs will have to change.
3: Absolutely, jobs have to change. And companies will have to invest in retraining. Right now, you'll hear companies saying, well, I can't find qualified people. This is ridiculous. Companies have historically had to train workers. And we've abandoned that as a mandate. And I I think the idea that you should just be able to find the people that you want is one of the broken ideas in our
5: modern economy. So how would we change the incentives of companies to encourage training for this new era because inherently they're not going to do it because there's actually huge disincentives to do it? Well, I think the biggest thing we need
3: to change is the alignment of executive compensation with stock price. It's a rare company that says, no, we actually are going to optimize for the real economy. When we see that the instructions to our economy given by policymakers, by these policies that we have, by executive decisions, are hollowing out the economy and hurting ordinary people. We say, well, that's just the way it is. I think we need to hold our companies accountable and and say, we can build an economy that puts people to work. Uh, I just kind of want to come back to this idea that really came to animate the book, and that is that our financial markets are also one of these algorithmic technology systems like Facebook, like Google. And we don't call them tech, but they actually have a lot in common with it. Uh, so we actually have a master algorithm that runs our economy. And it is hostile to humans. And it tells companies what to do. And it tells them, uh, you know, hey, if you make money with fake news, do it. Hey, if you make money by giving sugar to people when we know it's bad for them, do it. Hey, if you you know want to peddle tobacco for 40 years after you know uh, that, it, that it's killing people, go
5: ahead because guess what? Shareholder value. Tim, to hear you talk against shareholder value sounds so fascinating because on one hand you sound like an extraordinary leftist of the 19th century model, but at the same time... You're the president and CEO of a media company. You've been thinking about leadership and responsibility and corporate performance for decades and have done an incredible job at it. So how have you taken the themes of the book and the values that you have and applied it to your own business?
3: Uh, Great question. One of our mottos at O'Reilly has always been create more value than you capture. And that actually came uh, in the early days of the internet when more than one internet billionaire said, "You know, I started my company with one of your books." And I thought, "Wow, I got thirty-five dollars. You got a billion. That's great, <laughs> you know." And and uh, but we when we started our Safari Online platform, which was originally an ebook platform, it's grown into an online learning platform. It's now the core of our business. We invited in our biggest competitors. Why? Because we said, hey, if ebooks are ever going to amount to something, by the way, this is seven years before the Kindle, we said we've got to get everybody on board. And to this day, you know, when we introduce new features into the platform, we go out and we evangelize them. We literally are there. We say, well, we just introduced live training in Safari. Pearson and Wiley aren't picking up on it fast enough. You know, we're going to take too much of the revenue and we're going to unbalance the platform because we really think about creating value for all the participants so the platform continues to be valuable for everyone.
5: You know, one of the one of the nicest aspects of your book, WTF, is a line that's almost subterranean all throughout it. And it is what I'll phrase as the two cultures. And there's the culture of Silicon Valley, and there's the culture of the rest, maybe the rest Mm -hmm. of the economy, whether it's outside of Silicon Valley globally, whether it's Washington DC, whether it's New York, places that aren't imbued with technology. And the culture of the technologist is, as you phrased it with Hoffman's Law, named after Reed Hoffman, that things are gonna get cheaper every year because that's sort of the Moore's Law story of processors becoming more performant and less expensive. While other things, typically when you think of things as as a politician, the costs go up every year. How do you bridge, how does society bridge these two cultures, one of which is about accelerated growth and opportunity, the Silicon Valley mindset, and the other one is of a real world that isn't aware of those same trends and doesn't have the imagination of applying these technologies to their problems?
3: Well, first off, I'm not sure I buy the two cultures idea. In fact, Part of the purpose of my book is to address Silicon Valley and say, hey, you're leaving the rest of the world behind. You're working on products for people like you. You should be taking the lessons of what you've learned about how to build amazing products and solving hard, real problems. For example, I finished the book with uh, the story of Zipline, which is this incredible startup using on-demand and drones. They're, they're the Uber of blood and medicine delivery in Rwanda. Now, how much better is that than I'm the Uber of dry cleaning, I'm the Uber of you know your lunch? These guys are basically saving lives because they realize that using modern technology, they could just jump right over the fact that there's no developed hospital infrastructure in this country, that the roads are bad, and that a huge number of women die from postpartum hemorrhage because there's no blood to be had uh, within range of them. And they can get it to them in 15 minutes from anywhere in the country. And that's like this astonishing, like we're going to solve a real problem with this amazing gift of technology. And I want more technologists to go solve hard problems and to make the world a better place because that's what technology is really for.
1: As our technology correspondent, I couldn't agree more. Now, if you enjoy Babbage or any of our other podcasts, please let us know by rating us on iTunes or whichever platform you listen on. We'd love your feedback. That just about wraps things up for this week. I've been your host, Hal Hodson. Thank you very much for listening. In London, this is The Economist.